Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It's Tuesday, September 19th, more than halfway through September, Tuesday night. Got back from trivia. Not what I would call the most amazing results, but I was with amazing people. Good vibes there, as always. So, can't complain too much. But anyways, going to be a little bit shorter episode tonight, but I mainly want to talk about two things. I want to give a few more takes and thoughts from Trump's interview. And then I want to get into some pretty ominous and threatening and somewhat troubling statements that Trump put out on Truth Social about the Jewish New Year that is being celebrated right now and how he's questioning liberal Jewish people's basically allegiance to the United States. And that's a troubling trend that we've seen throughout history. And I don't like it one bit. And I kind of want to talk a little bit about how Vice, were you listening to this mirrors a lot of what we see in Italian fascism and, and just other movements up, throughout history. The election was but first, were you calling the shots, though, Mr. Yesterday, President, I was so caught up in talking uh, about as to whether or not I believe it was rigged. I sure, I, quickly I, it was my decision. I, I don't see a ton of Trump kind of admitted in that um, in that Meet the Press interview that despite receiving counsel from many people that the 2020 election was not stolen, he basically listened to his own instincts and went ahead and claimed that the election was stolen and he tried to overturn the results. And I don't know if this is a lot for prosecutors. I'm not a legal expert, so I'm going to leave that to the lawyers. But a lot of commentators that I trust, ranging from center left to center right, have argued that this is not good for Trump's case because basically he's admitting that he that he's the one that instructed this whole thing to happen. Basically, he's admitting that even though people told him the election wasn't stolen, he still argued that it was. He still listened to his own instincts. And at this point, I truly think the gamble he is going for here is that he is just hoping this is left up to voters and that he gets back into office and basically he can pardon himself because he's basically admitting to this entire thing. And unless he's going for insanity as his argument, then he's just hoping he wins the election again. That's the only out I see for him based on the way he's arguing his case. And I can't imagine what his remaining lawyers are thinking. They're probably just face palming hard right now. But I'm just going to play this really brief moment where he kind of discusses how this was all his instinct, even though people told him otherwise. So, oh, sorry, so let's turn that off. Um, but yeah, I mean, take it how you want. He is at least acknowledging that he was aware of what other people were saying and that he went on ahead. I don't think it's good for his case that he said that, but I also, <laughs> as he says later in his interview, he's pretty much got away with everything he's ever done. So who knows? One other thing that I didn't mention yesterday was that he did actually discuss during the interview that he was thinking about pardoning himself in the final days of the presidency, but I guess decided not to. Honestly, I probably would have if I were him, just based on all the chaos that's going on right now. But just very telling stuff. Before I get into today's events involving him, I do just want to briefly play, I think, what was the funniest part of this. Just a little bit of a light palate cleanser before we get into the heavier shit. And basically what this is, is Kristen Welker says... you're. Your mugshot. What do you th- 
you know, what do you think about when you see the mugshot? And Trump just perfectly plays again the victim card, the target card, the political prisoner card, and then also the glorious savior card. And it's just a mess. So I want to stay go. focused on you for the purposes of this interview, okay? Because it's important that we hear from you about all of this. Tell well, me I'd what, like you to, but you keep me, interrupting me. Tell me, Mr. President, <laughs> tell me what you see when you look at your mugshot. I see somebody that loves this country, in me, <laughs> that loves this country. I see tremendous unfairness. I think very few people would have able, been able to handle what I handled. When I was coming down the escalator with Melania, uh, I was already under investigation because they saw how well I was doing in the polls. And it just got worse and worse. And we caught them. We said they were spying on our campaign. It turned out to be true. They had the fake dossier. That turned out to be true. It was paid for by the Democrat Party. It was all fiction. All of these things happened. Impeachment hoax number one, impeachment hoax number two. <sighs> I'm going to start facepalming. I mean, this just sounds again like the word salad that this guy has put out since 2016 into 2017, when back then he claimed the election was rigged because he won the presidency but didn't win the popular vote. And then it's the Democrat hoax. Look, to be fair, I wasn't a big fan of the Steele dossier. I think the media and a lot of Democrats doubled down a little bit too much on the Russian collusion stuff in the Mueller report. I think there was and were, sorry, were findings in the Mueller report, but they just weren't damning enough and there was no proof of intent. So it made it very difficult to actually go much further than that. But that being said, I mean, oh, I went down the golden escalator with Melania and I just wanted to save this country when I look at my mugshot and see a victim. I just, you know, I think of all the people and blah, blah, blah. And I don't even have the clips in front of me, but also over the weekend, he was doing some pretty deranged speeches, and people are kind of laughing because in the background, they have that QAnon theme that's kind of like operatic, epic kind of symphony music, and everyone's like, why is that playing? And I heard a really good take today that was basically like, Trump is now truly believing that he is the savior of the country, and he thinks he is trying to save the country from dangerous powers. And so the QAnon music behind him at the rallies really helps him play up the victim card, the martyr card. And I think it's dangerous stuff, and this guy is very, very deranged. Again, I would love to just be, on a, be a fly on the wall in an office where he's talking. I would love to just meet him and really get to understand what the guy is like, to be completely honest. But anyways, I want to get on to even more deranged things that he said in the last 24 hours. And uh, I, I lied, not last 24 hours, but last couple days. So Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year. Um, it's the biblical name for this holiday, which is Yom Torah. And it goes from Friday, September 15th of 2023 to Sunday, September 17th of 2023. And our former president put out a statement that is <laughs> problematic. So I'm going to go through it real quick and then get into some other thoughts about it. But just as a little side note, I guess you could say, in October of last year, Trump had attacked American Jews basically because they were not thankful towards him and his policies and they were not supporting him enough. 
he basically leaned on a very anti-Semitic trope. This trope was that American Jews have secret loyalties to Israel rather than the United States. And Trump basically was saying that they show more appreciation to Israel than to him. And he just argued that no president had done more for Israel than he had done. And things he talked about is that, you know, he helped recognize Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. He recognized Israel's sovereignty over settlements in Judea and Samaria. And also he moved the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. I would argue that that actually helps escalate tensions with Palestine, doesn't make things safer or better. But that's a whole other story. But that's just the backdrop in this because I think it was two days ago, Trump put out, I guess you could say a memo or a flyer on Truth Social. And at the top, it says in red and bold, just a quick reminder for liberal Jews who voted to destroy America and Israel because you believed false, false narratives. Let's hope you learn from your mistake and make better choices moving forward. Happy New Year. Isn't that a real happy holiday letter blaming liberal Jews who voted to destroy America and Israel? Ugh. And then it gets into the memo. There's a big picture of his face with an American flag behind it, of course. And it says, wake up sheep. What Nazi anti-Semite ever did this for the Jewish people or Israel? By the way, he spelled Nazi wrong, which is interesting. And then he gets into, yeah, how he moved the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, recognized sovereignty in the Golan Heights, recognized sovereignty in Judea and Samaria. He signed an executive order for Judaism to be a national, or sorry, to be a nationality in addition to a religion. That one I'm okay with, blah, blah, blah. But number five, May 2020, he says Trump signs the Never Again Education Bill into law, which allocates millions of dollars to expand Holocaust awareness. Four and five I'm fine with. Like, I don't think everything in this is bad. But I'm focusing more on the fact that he is basically saying that the Jews need to learn and be better and support him and be more thankful for him because he's done more for them than any other president, which I would argue he actually hasn't. Because, see, I actually like him signing an executive order for Judaism to be a nationality in addition to a religion. I think there's a lot of interesting literature on that. I, I, I don't have a bold stance on that, but I think that's actually where there's a conversation to be had. I also like him expanding Holocaust awareness, but he seems to think that because he's done some things to support Israel, that if you're a Jew that votes for the Democratic Party, you're disloyal. And this plays into a lot of kind of dangerous tropes that have been used throughout history about how Jewish Americans or Jewish Germans or Jewish Italians or Jewish Argentinians or whatever have dual loyalty. And it feeds into this anti-Semitism that we've seen kind of creeping into the mainstream in the United States for the last couple of years. I talked about Elon Musk and Twitter getting red-pilled, or X, whatever you want to call it, where, you know, they're blaming basically the um, Anti-Defamation League and others for basically the reason why Twitter's declining, all this stuff. It's like this big, deep conspiracy linked with George Soros and others, blah, blah, blah. But I don't like this because we have to remember that other than highly religious Orthodox Jews, a lot of the Jewish American population votes for Democrats. The Jewish community is fairly liberal. And it, two things can be true at once here. Like a president can defend the Jewish community and try to bolster awareness about the Holocaust, but he also can't expect them to all of a sudden vote for him, especially if they disagree with his policies. 
And we also have to remember that even if Trump did this, he also kind of winked and dog whistled to white nationalists. He told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. And there's a lot of anti-Semitism in these groups. And I would argue that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers are getting a little bit troubling and closer to the MAGA movement day by day. And I mean the radical MAGA movement, not just the average Trump voter, but the really mobilized MAGA movement. And so Trump is almost expecting people to all of a sudden vote for him because he's transactionally doing more for them. And if they don't then support him, it's disloyal. And it's a really troubling and toxic soup of botulism that I do not like. And I think it just, again, feeds so many tropes. And since he said this, I talked about Jonathan Greenblatt before, but he is the CEO of the Anti-Defamation League. And in response to Trump's truth social memo or whatever you want to call it, Greenblatt said here in quotes, it is dangerous and wrong to suggest an entire segment of the Jew Jewish population voted to destroy America and Israel. Whether or not it's intentional, President Trump is playing into conspiracy theories about dual loyalty here. Even worse, he continued in quotes, this is happening on one of the holiest days of the Jewish calendar, Rosh Hashanah. And I guess, yeah, I mean, Jewish people have historically voted for Democrats in greater numbers than for Republicans. And... It's just not good that Trump has this lengthy history of attacking Jewish voters who don't support him because that trickles down into the voting base. It trickles, trickles down into the language of supporters. It trickles down into our whole political ecosystem, and it's not good. And like I said, in October, he did this same thing, saying, you guys better be more thankful for me. And I guess my question to my audience here, to the listeners, is, I guess what happens when you have a narcissist like Donald Trump, who to me is like a textbook narcissist, what happens when someone like him thinks he's doing things for a group, but the group isn't supporting him enough? I don't know, but it's an interesting thought experiment. It's a troubling thought experiment that I don't really want to know the outcome for in a lot of ways. Now, I think where all of this troubles me is that I was listening to David Pakman earlier, and he echoed something that I've been talking about and thinking about deeply for years now. As you guys are aware, I've been very fascinated with Italian fascism, Spanish authoritarian military dictatorships, what happened in Portugal as well, what happened in obviously Nazi Germany. But I've been very fascinated with how fascism always seems to bear its ugly head when it exists or coexists inside of a democracy. And a lot of people have said if you look at late-stage Trump and the rhetoric he's, losing, he's using, sorry, it does somewhat have parallels with Benito Mussolini or Il Dulce, who a lot of people call the father of modern fascism. I think we all associate Hitler with fascism, but I think Benito Mussolini um, is actually a better example of the raw, blatant form of fascism. I think Hitler really... I, I, w I would say it was a violent mutation, like the Nazi Germany and the Nazi party were a violent mutation of this, but Hitler created more of an ethno-militaristic racist state that did have fascism as its driving force, but I think Italian fascism was much more centered in being adaptable, pragmatic, rooted in reality, and a lot more incompetent, ineffectual, and half-hearted. And this is not me praising it because I think it's abhorrent, but 
Mussolini was really good at drawing on existing left-wing European currents, such as something called anarcho-syndicalism, which basically was looking to offer the world an alternative to the failures of democracy. And I think Benito Mussolini, in a lot of ways, was more of a revolutionary. And this whole anarcho-syndicalism and almost like antithetical socialism led to his view of fascism. And it was kind of designed to turn the world order upside down. And it was very neo-Roman, neo-romantic, and even avant-garde. And... His fascism, I, d I think, stemmed from a neo-romantic view of liberalism, as crazy as that may sound. And I used a lot of words there, but I think, honestly, the MAGA movement is more rooted in that same, like, anarcho-syndicalism than it is in, like, a Nazi thing. Because I think Italian fascism is a better way to understand the MAGA movement, the Steve Bannon movement, Vox in Spain... Marine Le Pen and in the March Forward movement in Paris, or sorry, in France, the alternative for Deutschland in Germany, these like right wing parties, Viktor Orban, they're much more anarcho syndicalist. And I think we like getting into like getting back to Trump's comments about the Jewish community and how their loyalty is tested and they need to be apologizing and thanking him and he hope he hopes they learns from last they learned from last time. I think an interesting lesson is in Italy, you know, we have to remember that Mussolini and his main followers, they always questioned Hitler's racial focus. They kind of mocked his anti-Semitism and thought it was going too far. And early Italian fascism was not anti-Semitic. There were always going to be veins of it and offshoots of it, but the general Italian fascism was not. And we have to remember that there were even supporters of Mussolini that were Jewish, like Margarita Sephardi. She's a biographer that was really big during his time. And there were others that I don't have in front of me, but I, but I remember reading The Anatomy of Fascism, and it talks about how actually there were a lot of Jewish individuals that were close to Mussolini at the beginning. But we have to remember that fascism always needs to expand once the populace at home is getting angry and somewhat upset. Trump, of course, does not have that same situation going. And I, I think it's because generally in neo-fascism or anarcho-capitalism or all these different subsets in this, basically someone rises to power with kind of anti-democratic sentiment and then they rely on both a mix of like socialist populism, socialist movements, socialist skepticism of our institutions, but they also rely on kind of a like a right-wing nationalism that is about recreating the state and going back to kind of old principles, old values, making a country strong again. And this this always relies on some sort of internal and external threat. And I think when these coex excuse me, coexist together. And I've talked before about how I think 9/11 helped a lot of People, sorry, I got the hiccups all of a sudden. I think it. I think it helps. I think 9/11 really, basically, got a lot of American voters worried about global Islam, for example, and the external threats of the outsider. And then when you mix that with the internal dynamics of the elites and the powerful and the so-called deep state, 
that's where you kind of have a growing sentiment here. But back to Mussolini, we have to remember that he invaded Ethiopia in what a lot of Spanish scholars and other scholars from The Hague back at the time, I think this was in the 20s, basically they said the Ethiopian War was almost like a dress rehearsal for the Spanish Civil War, which was a dress rehearsal for the, for the World War II theater in Europe. And the Ethiopian War was really a genocide. There was a lot of like neo-Roman views from Mussolini's people, but what happened was is the, the fascist state could only internalize the problems so far so they went they invaded Ethiopia committed atrocities and genocide tens of thousands dead and as the war started fading in the late 1930s Italy gained a closer alliance with Nazi Germany and even though not uh, sorry even though fascist Italy under Mussolini was not very anti-semitic Italy turned towards Germany, and then started instituting official anti-Semitism laws that deprived the Jews of their honor, property, basic rights. Of course, the situation never got as bad as in Germany, but in a lot of ways, there was still this same idea that started to coexist in society about how the Jewish community had dual allegiances. And I think that's where it gets to the crux of this, is that Someone that's a populist, especially on the right, especially if there's fascist under undercurrents that are starting to creep up to the surface, some sort of war is inevitable, some sort of conflict is inevitable, and that always leads to some form of racism. Because I think racism eventually comes together perfectly with fascism. And... There's a good article in Salon from 2022, and it writes this, which I think is a really good point. It said, and, and this is more about Italy, but I think it holds true to the anti-Semitism we're seeing in the United States right now. It says, just as war is inevitable, so is, vir- so, so is virulent racism. Both go together in fascism. One provides an external enemy, while the other provides an internal enemy. If they can be linked together, for example, the worldwide Jewish banking conspiracy, or the worldwide Islamic terror conspiracy, so much the better. War becomes more comprehensible for fascist supporters when the internal enemy is attached to the endless cycle of wars abroad, which is said to stem from the same root threat to virile nationalist probity. And I think that is kind of in a sense where we're at, because if you look at the interminglings of the war in the Middle East right now, the war in Ukraine, what's happening in Israel between Israel and the Palestinians, there's a lot of through lines here, because you hear Putin, for example, talking about how they need to denazify Ukraine, which is just insane, but it's a rallying call inside of Russia. And then if you mix that, I think, with the growing American conspiracies that have come from Tucker Carlson and RFK Jr. and Donald Trump, just to name a few, J.D. Vance, Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, they talk about the World Economic Forum and how these elites are trying to control what you do and eat. They talk about George Soros and his, obviously he's a Holocaust survivor and his influence in left-leaning politics. They talk about how the war in Ukraine is more complicated and it's corrupt then you you look at how they've melded basically like the Anti-Defamation League is trying to take down X and also the money in the deep state is trying to send money to Ukraine and George Soros is involved in this. 
all of it does lead to kind of like a global, the irony is, okay, let, let me step back here, is the irony here is that, you know, all of these right-wing conspiracy theorists that I think are kind of anarcho-capitalists that are leaning into fascism, they all say it's the New World Order and the World Economic Forum and these are the bad guys. But I, ironically, they are actually playing into what I would call kind of a global fascist system that people like Steve Bannon and Viktor Orban, Vladimir Putin, Recep Erdogan to an extent, these type of people are really exploiting Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. Like, that is what I'm seeing here. And I, I think Trump is just like the, the perfect puppet to this because... In a sense, I think a lot of world leaders are fairly jealous of how well Trump has done this rhetoric. And that's why I think, in a sense, he is similar to Benito Mussolini. Benito Mussolini kind of pioneered a new version of anarcho-syndicalism that became what we now deem as kind of modern fascism. And of course, Nazi Germany went into a more nationalist, Prussian, racist version of it, a sub-variant of fascism. But it was Mussolini who kind of created this unique populism, also this disregard for international institutions and this willingness to work in conspiracies. And I, I, I think that it's worrying now that Trump is now falling into old tropes about talking about how the Jews have dual loyalties, etc. And that falls through a lot of mainstream institutions. And I, I think in a lot of ways, when you look at like the Peter Thiels and the Elon Musks, the Tucker Carlson's, the RFK Juniors. Yeah, these are people that have varying views in politics. But I think the through line for all of them is kind of this anarcho-syndicalism, which is like also also like bolstered with conspiratorial thinking. And it's this deep resentment of our modern institutions, our modern political system. And sometimes they're correct in identifying the malaise of our system, but the remedy is, is, is not good. It's not good at all. And going back to that salon piece for a second, I, I think it brings up a good point. It writes here about how obviously Trump's bad, but if our systems were better, maybe this wouldn't have happened. It writes here, we are currently lamenting Trump's evisceration of the media and other institutions of democracy, but he would not be having such success, at least with half of the population, if some of those institution, institutions were not already seriously compromised. And we are compromised. And that gets us to this degradation of society towards one another. And I am ranting right now. I, I understand that completely. But sometimes I got to get out a good rant. And that's definitely what I'm doing here. And I was telling a buddy a little bit ago, we were exchanging texts, and I was basically saying something to the effect of, I am just, I, I spend a lot of my day trying to understand the fascism that we saw in the 1930s into the 1940s, and then we saw kind of a silent era of that until like the 1990s, what we saw in the Balkans with like Milosevic, Slivovan, Milosevic, for example, in Serbia. And I think, again, we're seeing another resurgence of that. And I think we are entering kind of an era of somewhat neo-fascism. And the shame is that I think if Trump is back into office, he is very fine to be more and more into that role of being a Benito Mussolini or someone to that extent who does rightfully understand that change and the collapse of our institutions is happening but he wrongfully is doing it in ways that are abhorrent to human rights, abhorrent to society. 
And I, I always say when, when Trump tells you what he wants to do, we should believe him. And he's called for retribution. He's now basically guilt-tripping the Jewish community into liking him more because he doesn't think they support him enough. And then he also talks about he, he would prefer to have public executions of criminals and drug dealers. He has applauded Kim Jong-un. He thinks that Russia at least has some justification for wanting parts of Ukraine. He clearly likes at least some of the ideologies of people like Viktor Orban, Erdogan, the former president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte. It is troubling, and I think we do need to deeply look at history to better understand what's happening. And again, I think too many people jump on the Trump to Hitler train. No, I don't think that is true at all. Full stop. But I do think that we are seeing the rumblings of a neo-fascism. It doesn't start and end with Trump, but he is definitely one of the main lieutenants in this movement. And we need to be wary about it. And we need to make sure that he is not president again. And I understand people have many reasons that are various and diverse, a myriad of concerns about Biden. But this guy, he tells us who he is day in, day out. And it still troubles me that there are people that say, yeah, he's better than Biden, because I just don't see it. And I don't think any of the evidence of him or the people he hangs out with or the rhetoric he has can ever be used to say he's less dangerous than Biden. So anyways, rant aside, I'll let you go to bed. It's getting late. Centered from Reality Podcast, as always, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube. You guys know the rest. Have a great night. I'll be back. Avita Zane in. Wish us luck. Hopefully um, hopefully in the next couple weeks, the trivia gods are more in our favor. So, ciao.